If I may, this evening I'd like to continue with the talk I began the other night, and I have every intention this evening of finishing it. Uh, the other evening I was talking about uh, the development of insight, and possibly have forgotten entirely what I was talking about, but I was talking about the three areas of insight the area of personal insight, uh, the area of insight into the characteristics of existence, and insight into the unconditioned, and stressing that these three areas of insight were not necessarily progressive, in the sense that we didn't first take care of ourselves and then graduate to a higher level of insight and then take care of that and then finally graduate to enlightenment which was not the implication but much more to be able to see the way in which these three areas of insight are not separate uh, not intended to be separate in any way um, that they're kind of interwoven tapestry and that essentially every moment offers us the invitation and the opportunity simply to explore a way of seeing this moment which includes everything um, in the light of understanding. What I'd like to go on with this evening is to look at some of the implications of these different areas of insight. When we first begin in meditation, most of our attention, of course, is drawn to the area of our personal self. Most of our attention is drawn to uh, the different feelings and the different reactions, the different mental states the different images that arise and pass that we see in our meditation. Um, You know, we have perhaps a kind of peripheral interest in other people. Um, We perhaps do have an interest in understanding the characteristics of existence, of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, of the emptiness of self. What is really making an impact on us initially in meditation, of course, is our own inner forces. Um, This is where we find ourselves getting stuck. This is where we find ourselves feeling trapped at times. This is also where we find ourselves often letting go and opening, questioning some of the images that we have about ourselves, questioning some of the belief systems that we have about ourselves, seeing directly that we don't always have to be tied into patterns or or, uh, patterns of reaction that have previously felt very powerful in our lives. Now, because this area of our personal self is basically what we are engaged with, a lot in meditation, it is really important to know ourselves very deeply, to learn how to bring 
clarity and equanimity and spaciousness to being present with ourselves. Learning how to be able to embrace and to accommodate everything that moves us, whether it is difficult or whether it is pleasant. To learn how to embrace things that we don't always like. And, you know, there's that wonderful line about, you know, why is self-knowledge always such bad news? And, you know, often it does seem like that in meditation. It's like one unwelcome revelation after another, you know. I thought I got over my anger. I never knew I was so greedy. You know, sometimes people come to interviews and say, I never knew I was like this. I never knew I was so selfish, you know are so intolerant, you know, are so, so jealous. And sometimes it's kind of a surprise package in meditation what arises, and sometimes it's not a surprise package at all. Instead, we find ourselves, oh, there it is again. You know, oh, that one again. You know, oh, no, not again the anger. You know, I thought I dealt with that, you know. And that is often more the feeling, this kind of recognition of what is going on. But, of course, every moment in our practice is not an opportunity just to become more intimately acquainted with the things that we don't like about ourselves. Rather, our practice is much more an opportunity to see what is possible in the midst of those various patterns and reactions and areas of conditioning. And this is, of course, extraordinarily important to remember. We're not here just to review, so to speak, our ancient skeletons, but to see what is possible. This is also very needed. I think it is very very helpful, important to understand that many of the things that arise in retreat, they feel initially like demons, like dragons. You know, we don't want them, we don't welcome them always, we don't like them, we would prefer they didn't come up. But unless we really learn how to be present within our own demons, not to get rid of them, not to make ourselves better, not to make ourselves more perfect, but unless we really understand our own demons very deeply, then essentially we have no inner authority. Because inner wisdom, knowing ourselves very deeply, is the basis of genuine inner authority, being able to live and speak and act from a place of clarity and fearlessness within ourselves. Because if we don't, you know, if we avoid our demons, if we avoid our shadows, if we avoid our own areas of darkness, then often the foundation of our life is both one of fear and a lack of authority. And by authority, I'm not implying a dominating, overpowering, controlling kind of authority. 
But the authority of wisdom, the authority of understanding ourselves, the authority that comes from not having areas within ourselves that we feel to be afraid of or that we must control. Now that inner knowing, that coming to meet ourselves in a very intimate way, in a very deep way, it is not, as I mentioned, in order to get rid of anything. It's not to try to get rid of anything. And it's not done either in a way of analyzing endlessly, you know, I'm like this, why am I like this, where did it come from? It would be too simplistic to think that if we knew the cause of everything, that that would be the solution. It's not. No, the reason why this inner exploration is important and is needed in the meditation, it is because understanding ourselves is the basis of acceptance. It's the basis of generosity. It's the basis of compassion. It's the basis of allowing, of forgiveness. This, in our inner relationship, these qualities in our inner relationship, which are born of understanding ourselves, of course, are the basis also of all of our other relationships, of our relationship with the world around us. Acceptance, is really important in this path. And by acceptance, I don't mean a passive acceptance. I don't, I'm not referring to a kind of resigned, you know, despairing, depressed acceptance. You know, this is the way I am, you know, and I feel so sorry for myself and I hope everybody else feels sorry for me. Not that kind of acceptance, but clear conscious awareness of what moves us, of what what arises within us, what patterns we hold, the acceptance, the allowing, the generosity towards that. Now I would really go so far as to say that acceptance is a prerequisite for deepening in meditation. And I would like just to look at the role that acceptance does play. When there is a lack of acceptance of ourselves, of who we are, of everything that makes us who we are, when there is that lack of acceptance inwardly, it colors every area of our lives. And it colors our relationship to the present moment itself. Is it realistic to think that we will be generous and compassionate towards others if we cannot do this towards ourselves? Is it realistic to think that we will be non-judgmental, allowing in our relationship to others if we cannot extend this to ourselves? When there is no acceptance, there is its opposite. There is then denial and avoidance. They are the the other pole, the other extreme of acceptance. When there is no acceptance, we often find ourselves at war. At war with ourselves, at war with the moment that we're in. And when there is no acceptance, we have, of course, the predominance of should. Should. How I should be. 
how other people should be, what should be happening in my experience, how I should be progressing, how I shouldn't be failing. It's endless, the shoulds. They can come into every single area of our lives, our retreats. Now, the conflict between what is and what we think should be, this tension is what causes so much of the busyness we experience, so much of our movements towards and away from things, so much of our desires to modify, to alter, to manipulate the restlessness, the agitation. All of this is basically a statement of our unwillingness or sometimes our feeling of being unable just to be present with what is, to find peace amidst that. Now, instead, we think, always in terms of peace, of understanding, of compassion, of wisdom, lying after we've made everything, including ourselves, into what we think it should be. Now, the gap between what is and what should be creates, too, many of the struggles, many of the difficulties that we experience in meditation. And it also creates the swing between elation and despair. And we know those swings, you know, when you have a... What is happening often when we feel very happy about our meditation, when we feel very happy about ourselves, when we feel very happy about the other people on the retreat, Often we are, well, perhaps not always, but at times we are happy or we feel excited or we feel pleased because everything is conforming to our idea of what should be. Now look at the times when you feel unhappy here. Look at the moments when you might feel unhappy with yourself, when you feel unhappy with other people, when everybody seems to be doing something wrong. Look at the times when you feel unhappy just with everything. So often those moments are because things are not what we think they should be. It doesn't conform to our idea or to our image of what should be. This is, of course, why we have ideas, too, of failure and success. Now, no one ever in the history of meditation failed at meditation. And yet, so many people feel they fail. So many people feel failure. Meditation, it's, it's hard to understand what's going on. You know, nobody has ever failed. And yet, we often have these very false ideas of failure and success that often, too, has to do with our shoulds. And when we have shoulds, what we don't have is the present moment. We don't have what is. And in that vacuum, when we feel separate from what is, as a substitution, we create goals. We create images. We create ideas that we would like to reach. But the more that we focus on the goals, the more difficult it is to attune ourselves to what is present right now. The more difficult it becomes just to accept to be clearly connected with what is taking place. 
Our greatest teachers, of course, lie within the present moment. Every single thing that we need for transformation lies within the moment. We have life, we have awareness, we have capacities for attention, we have wakefulness, we have phenomena, we have impermanence, we have construction. Every single thing that we need for transformation lies within this moment that we're in. It's our greatest teacher. And yet it becomes increasingly difficult to be aware of that because the shoulds keep pushing us towards the next moment, towards the future, towards attainment, towards what will be after I fix everything that's wrong in this moment. And so it becomes, it is in that pushing, at times really difficult to appreciate the power and the potential of the teachers that are already with us, within us, and all around us, in the moment that we're experiencing. Now, I feel that we spend a lot of time, we can spend really a lot of time in meditation, and let's be years, understanding this basic struggle, understanding the nature of struggle, understanding the nature of conflict, and I'm not saying that in a condemning way. This is our basic lesson to understand the nature of struggle and the nature of conflict. This is one of our most essential challenges to understand the nature of struggle and conflict as it takes place in our relationship to the present moment and to ourselves. And understanding the nature of conflict and understanding the nature of struggle is understanding what happens when there is a lack of acceptance and is understanding what acceptance is in a clear, in a conscious, in an awake way. And I don't think it is untrue to say that understanding acceptance is really a crucial point in the development of wisdom. Understanding its nature deeply. Now when we of course, we've been in this retreat quite a long time now, and many things have gone on. But to reflect back to the beginning days, how when we had one simple task, actually at this point in the retreat too, we still have one simple task, which is to be awake. You know, that's the simple instruction that we have. You know, very basic, straightforward. It hasn't altered, you've noticed. You know, we haven't really graduated to any grand esoteric teachings, we're still hammering away at this business of being awake, right? our mantra. And it seems at times really quite a hard thing to do, you know. We have moments, it's true, when we feel really awake, and we have moments when we are very sure we are not. We can go for hours, you know, uh, or sometimes, you know, it's very timeless sleepy, sleepiness, if you notice. It can be a very timeless experience, you know, that we can drift and wander and fantasize and have all these thoughts and images and never worry about time in that, you know. Time just goes, you know. But it is true, it is quite unpleasant at times. It often feels so much struggle to be awake, like climbing a mountain, 
You know, where every step takes such effort and every step takes such work. And it often feels to be a very uphill kind of struggle. Now, why is that so? What are we struggling with? Do we want to be awake? I think probably most of us would agree that indeed we do want to be awake. You know, if we wanted to be asleep, we would have a bottle of tranquilizers or sleeping pills or be doing something else entirely. Most of us would agree this is our basic intention. We want to be awake. Then why do we have to struggle to be awake? Then this is just an interesting exploration. And the next time you find yourself in, you know, where's my breath, you know, or, you know, checking to see, you know, opening your eyes to see if you've still got a body, you know, or, you know, trying to check out if you're still alive. She said, well, what is the nature of that disconnection? What is the nature of that alienation from being awake? It seems that what is really at play there, of course, is a certain amount of resistance. Resistance. Now, why is that so? Why do we resist being present? Why do we find ourselves reaching into fantasies or into the next moment or into the past or into dwelling? Why is that resistance there? Is it because being awake is an unpleasant experience? I don't, I don't think it is. You know, the reports last heard are that being awake is not an unpleasant experience, that this is actually a very joyous experience. So we think we have these resistances that we work with. And I think one of the major resistances is that as we turn our intention inwardly with all good intentions, and we have the genuine, sincere intention to be awake and to be a conscious and to be aware, that when we turn our attention inwardly, we simply don't find what we want. And we simply don't find what we want. That we would like to turn our attention inwardly, of course, all of us, and encounter, you know, deep and profound states of consciousness and, you know, great breakthroughs and, you know, elevated states of bliss and joy, and we don't always find what we want. And here's this story. Um, one time a person came to, came to practice and said, I really have to learn to meditate. My life's a mess, filled with tension, it's filled with people who are very angry and filled with conflict, and I really need to find some peace. My outside life is an absolute state of chaos. I said, fine, and here's the instructions, how to be awake, you know, pay attention to your breath, etc., etc., Went home, the person went home and did it very conscientiously, morning and evening, paid attention to the breath, paid attention to the present moment, and came back after a week absolutely furious, so angry. I said to him, when I started doing this, all these things started coming up, all this you know, awareness of what was going on in my life, what was going on in myself. I didn't want this, I wanted peace. And I think this too is sometimes our, our own resistance. That we would like peace, um, but we'd like to skip the path, maybe. You know, that there is actually a path to peace. 
is actually a path to understanding, is actually a path to compassion. It's not a, a kind of magical benediction or a magical state that is bestowed upon us because we've taken the trouble to, you know, put in the time. Now, what we, of course, do find is that as we have patience and as we do persevere and as we do continue to extend energy and effort, we do find, actually, that what begins to emerge is trust. This is equal to acceptance in deepening in meditation. Trust in ourselves, trust in our own awareness, trust in our capacities to embrace what is taking place, trust in our own capacities to be present, that this begins to emerge. We find, you know, that these different demons have come and gone, these different mental states have come and gone, the doubts, the fears, the anxieties, the angers, and still we're sitting here. It means something. It does mean something. That what is actually beginning to come through is the quality of trust in our own capacities our own capacity to embrace and accommodate this variety of experience within ourselves. Trust in ourselves, trust in the past. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, all the thoughts are gone and all the demons are gone and all the mental states are gone. It doesn't mean that. But instead, there's a subtle shift. We find that we are simply not overwhelmed or victimized in the same way. That that which was previously so powerful or frightening um, or confusing for us is simply not having the same effect. It is not necessarily that the content has changed dramatically, but what has changed clearly is the consciousness which is accommodating those contents. So there is a feeling of embracing accommodating spaciousness around. Now this is not always, perhaps not always present, but sometimes it's a revelation that there can be fear without being afraid. There can be doubt without being uh, overwhelmed by self-negation. There can be anxiety without becoming worried. But there can be thoughts without becoming swamped by thought. Something has changed within the consciousness. And I think we should begin also to trust in our own inner resources because we are aware that this change that has come about in consciousness it has come about through our own attention, it has come about through our own energy, it has come about through our own commitment. No one has given this to us. And so I think there's a deepening of trust, a deepening of trust in our own resources. Now part of that change that begins to happen in consciousness is that there begins to be a greater glimpse, a deeper glimpse of our own capacities too, for calmness, for equanimity, for spaciousness. 
there's still valleys and peaks in the meditation, times when, you know, things seem to be going totally wrong, and other times when we feel very high, there are still those valleys and peaks. But there's a difference there, too. When we begin in meditation, often all that we're interested in are the peaks, the moments of high, the moments of happiness, the moments of feeling that we've gotten somewhere. But I think as the consciousness deepens, there's more equanimity. There is a greater appreciation of the valleys in meditation. There's a greater appreciation of the potential for insight and understanding that lies within the valleys. Now, what are those valleys about? We see ourselves drifting into them, times when we feel disconnected, when we feel unbalanced, when we feel confused. We begin to see, appreciate, on a more fundamental level, the direct cause-effect relationship between grasping and its cause. Uh, and its results. We experience very directly the relationship between resistance and its effect. We see very directly the relationship between striving and its effect. We see very directly the relationship between conflict and the ways in which it is caused within ourselves. We discover what holding does to us, what grasping does to us, whether it's onto a mental state but it's on to the last chicken. That what grasping does is alienate us, contracts us. We begin to see that clearly and we begin to apply that understanding. We see the power of wanting. Wanting what we don't have. Wanting to get rid of what we do have. Wanting what somebody else has got. We see the power of wanting, how much judgment it creates. We see the power of, of holding on to our self-images. And we learn to stay with these experiences. How to open to them. How to accommodate them. How to accept them. How to learn from them. How, we begin to learn that we don't have to be ensnared, entangled, or trapped by anything within the consciousness. And truly, not to be trapped by anything within the consciousness, it is difficult to find anything in the world you will be trapped by, or ensnared by, or victimized by. It becomes a very powerful source of insight. You begin to appreciate that suffering is not necessary. That conflict is not necessary. That there is much in life which is unsatisfactory. There is much in existence which is unsatisfactory. But conflict is something extra. It is something different. It is created for our lack of understanding of the unsatisfactory. Our reactions to it, our judgments of it. And we begin to experience that it is not necessary. One of the primary insights that comes through this understanding is to see very clearly and very directly that awareness neutralizes the power of conditioning. That we don't have to undo the past, we don't have to erase the past, we don't have to become something, we don't have to achieve something, 
that awareness neutralizes the power of conditioning. This is fairly major in terms of our approach, relationship to ourselves, to the present moment. It empowers us. It doesn't mean that we dismiss the unsatisfactory. But awareness empowers us to be creative in our inquiry, creative in our exploration, creative and vital in our questioning. Because we come from a place not of rejection, not of grasping, but of acceptance. Now, there are different depths, of course, to the insights that come. You know, sometimes you you have an insight, say, you know, you perhaps you have anger arise, and you see very much the whole movement of its arising. You you see the reason why it arises because something you know displeases you or doesn't conform to ideas. You see that you can step out of it. You see that you can just let it go. And sometimes, of course. These insights into tendencies, you know, it gets quite a buzz off it. You know, you think, wow, you know, terrific, wonderful news. You know, I've seen that one. Now, of course, this is where the I steps in with grasping. I've seen it. You know, I have this insight. Now it's over. I've done that business. You know, I've done that bit. I don't have to deal with that again. Now, sometimes it is true that there can be insight which is so powerful into something that is taking place in the moment that there is a dissolution, a dissolving of that tendency. This is rare. This is rare. What is really important to understand is that insight is not magical. It is not, doesn't produce static results. That insight is a relationship of clear seeing and it is a relationship of application of insight. To see something very profoundly, very clearly, can be very awakening and very liberating. But we must also appreciate that it's not time for enlightened retirement. It's because we see something. It's not time to kind of, you know, go upstairs, pack our bags, yeah, I've done what I needed to do on this retreat, you know, I got it, now I'm going home, you know, and I'm never going to be bothered by that again. It is not so true. On the level of personal insight, on the level of, of, of seeing the characteristics of existence, seeing is the first step. The second step is to live in accord with what we see. And if we do not actually live in accord with what we see, we will find that insight becomes like static, dried up old memories. It is necessary to live in accord with what we see, otherwise insight has no power. Insight is the first step. The second step is to live in the spirit of insight in our lives. It is very easy to live in the habit of limitation, the habit of bondage, the habit of contraction. It is far more challenging for us to live in the spirit of freedom. And what does that mean for us to apply insight? It, it means in relationship to our thoughts, in relationship to our feelings, in relationship to our passions. 
What are the possibilities of letting go, of seeing clearly, of understanding, of being wholehearted, of being open, just to live in the spirit of freedom, not to hoard in moments of insight as if it's some kind of treasure collection. There's no freedom in that. And sometimes people, of course, leave retreats so, you know, they wonder after a very high sitting how they ever fall so low again. You know, and think, you know, where did I go wrong? You know, I thought I had it all together. And it's not because the insight was not valid. It's not because something wasn't seen clearly. But often the question we need to ask is how much are we really willing to live in the spirit of that understanding? Sustaining the practice, just sustaining the practice, sustaining attentiveness, sustaining connection, sustaining clear relationship and the willingness to see in each moment, the practice does deepen. And we experience many of the benefits of meditation. Greater calmness, greater peace, greater joy, greater lightness of being, greater ease within ourselves. Profound sensitivity at times, profound appreciation and gratitude. All of those things come. We find we are not so swayed by the contents of our experience. It is all just much of the content, you know. The thoughts, the sound, it's the feeling, and everything is unique and precious. So we have no need to isolate either. We feel more at home within our own awareness becomes home rather than feeling so exiled exiled into these wandering states of becoming we feel more at home within awareness and it's truly a wonderful feeling feeling at home within that awareness we see so clearly not only the forces that move within ourselves we see so clearly the nature of this phenomena it's arising and passing, it's birth and death, it's the absence of center in anything. The absence of self, not only in ourselves, but the absence of center in all things. We experience the kind of preciousness of that connection, that openness, that sensitivity that comes when we don't perceive a world of objects all separated from each other. We see this dance of name and form, but we're not so stuck in separation. We don't feel so stuck in alienation. And then it often feels, you know, very much like living in a world of bubbles. You know, the bubbles of thoughts, the bubbles of sounds, the bubbles of phenomena, of not investing anywhere. And there's often then no effort involved in letting go because we really appreciate that to hold on is, is just to interfere with the unfoldment of the moment and letting go is the most natural. Non-dwelling is the most natural way of being present. We experience in a very subtle, very deep way the ways in which suffering can be created and the ways in which suffering can be let go of. We experience very clearly the ways in which a sense of I is constructed through dwelling, 
and how we construct that same sense of self in all things through holding on to names, through holding on to descriptions, through holding on to our likes and dislikes. And in the letting go of the names and the letting go of the holding on to a center within ourselves, that so much of that distance and so much of that feeling of separate reality just begins to dissolve, that there is no truth in this, there is no truth in those constructions. And there is much heart opening that happens in that understanding. There is much loving, much joy, much compassion that arises very organically within letting go of those constructions and separations. There's also a quality of grace, a quality of not feeling compelled to go anywhere, not feeling compelled to become anything, not feeling compelled to get rid of anything, but much more that grace of receptivity, that grace of being, that grace of stillness, which is not separate from movement, but the grace of stillness which accommodates all movement, accommodates all change. And in that grace, which is there in the presence of things, it is there in the absence of things. Awareness is there in the presence of phenomena. It is there in the absence of phenomena. It requires no phenomena, but fully embraces all phenomena. And that awareness and that stillness, the process is open door. It's a true invitation to understanding that which is unconditioned, to that which is not subject to birth and death and to time and to place, to truly understanding the, the end of separation, the falseness of separation. And it all begins and it all ends with that very simple invitation just to be awake, just to be present, just to be where we are. May all beings live with calmness. May all beings deepen in understanding. May all beings live with compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.